Hello and welcome. This is Anger Management. My name is Georg Dietz. I'm Karin Pettersson. And we're here like every week to explore and seek adventures in democratic thinking. Um, we are really trying to figure out at this moment in crisis for democracy, what are the ideas that might help us move democracy into the 21st century. That's what we, why we're here. Um, we're two journalists from Europe. I'm from Germany. I'm from Sweden, and we're here at Harvard this year for a full year on a journalism fellowship and have the opportunity to speak to people. I want to share that with you. Anger management is really not our personal anger, even though some would call me angry or <laughs> I would call Karen. Well, I've uh, been called angry all my life, so Karen is a, it comes naturally to me. <laughs> Karen is an opinion writer. I'm an opinion writer, but... For the time being, we try to keep our opinions um, at least in sync with the opinions of our guests. This this week it was... Cass Sunstein, Professor Sunstein. He's a law professor, uh, one of the uh, Harvard superstars. Um, he worked for the Obama White House on regulation. He's famous for many things, but among other things... Um, um, thinking about the internet, the filter bubbles, and also um, the uh, intersection between behavioral science, law, and economics. And the there was the his bestseller. Yeah, nudge. Nudge, the bestseller from from a few years from ago. A few years ago. Yes. And you were interested but skeptical about that theory of no. change, which maybe you can explain the the, the nudge theory. Yeah, maybe I can. Uh, it's a concept uh, that argues for kind of positive reinforcements and uh, indirect suggestions to try to change people's behavior in a more, uh, for them and for society, positive direction. And um, with small nudges in terms of regulation, uh, just change incentives. And I think it's interesting, but also as someone who um, thinks a lot about inequality and kind of material... Um, the, you know, the basis of economics, I've sometimes wondered if it's insufficient. So we talked a little bit about that in the podcast, but also about his new book, which is called Hashtag Republic. And it's about um, the polarization of the public discourse and internet. That was a really good conversation, I think. Um, and I'm sure you enjoy it. So very welcome, Professor Sunstein, to Anger Management. We want to talk to you about many things, but uh, first and foremost, your new book, Republic, or Hashtag Republic. Hashtag Republic. Hashtag Republic, which is uh, recently published. And it's about the breakdown of public discourse, I would say. Could you, um, in your own words, explain what's wrong with with uh, the public discourse in, in the U.S. right now? Yes, the way I'd put it is that the problem that the book draws attention to is people's capacity and uh, desire to sort themselves into echo chambers, that is, uh, uh, domains where they can hear people who are like-minded, either in terms of their basic uh, uh, political orientation or in terms of the topics they like. So you might sort yourself into a community of people of a particular view on uh, climate change or a particular view on events in the Middle East, or you might sort yourself into a community of people who uh, really enjoy thinking about, let's say, 
um, uh, how to reduce deaths on the highway. That's not the most fun topic, but they might uh, have a commitment to that, or they might want to uh, be in a community where people talk about particular novels. So I would say that what uh, we are w witnessing with the aid of technology is uh, people's use of uh, an extraordinary architecture of control and that the kind of beating heart of the book is to oppose an architecture of control, uh, which leads to echo chambers or information cocoons, and uh, to contrast that with an architecture of serendipity, where you encounter ideas or points of view or topics that you never would have decided, oh, that's what I want to see. So before going into that, because you have uh, at the end of the book also uh, some suggestions in terms of what can be done about this, but c could you talk a little bit more about um, the psychological mechanisms that make it hard to move from this thing that you call cyber polarization to a more moderated or more nuanced or uh, another type of discourse? Yeah, there, there are three, I guess. Uh, one is uh, sometimes described as... Um, uh, homophily, which is a fancy way of saying that uh, birds of a feather often like to flock together. And this is just a propensity to think that uh, I want to be surrounded by people who are in some respects that make me feel comfortable, like me. And it might be that they have the same views about immigration. It might be they have the uh, same interest in certain topics, but they're, they're kind of like me. So that's the first one. Uh, the second is called group polarization, which is uh, not the most lovely word. And if you translated it into any language, I think it probably would not be a lovely word. But the idea is that if people talk to those who are like-minded on a political issue, say the issue is whether, uh, you know, whether uh, right-wing parties in European countries are, are good. Uh, if people talk to each other about that, uh, they end up thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk. So the idea of group polarization is that like-minded people don't end up where they started, which would be maybe a problem in itself. They end up a, more confident, B, more unified, and C, more extreme. And for individuals who are participating in this process of group polarization, that's not exactly great. It's a little uh, uh, too predictable. And for society, it's worse than not great because you get group polarization occurring among very different groups who end up uh, extreme and different from one another, which makes mutual comprehension and problem solving really difficult. So the second is group polarization. And the third also has uh, a less than elegant name. It's called biased assimilation. And the idea is that if you read stuff that both fortifies your existing viewers in line with it and that contradicts your existing view, you will assimilate that information in a biased way, meaning the material that is congenial to you, you will find credible and it'll maybe make you think that you were even more right than you originally thought. And the material that contradicts your view, you will find uh, not credible and you'll dismiss it. Mm. 
And so as people assimilate new information in a biased way, say you think that the immigration problem is out of control in your country, and then you read material suggesting that that's right, it's actually worse than you thought, Mm -hmm. that will move you to think, oh my gosh, uh, this is a catastrophic problem. And then if you read material suggesting that basically it's just fine and Mm -hmm. immigrants are assimilating okay and it's actually economically good, you will treat that as uh, like material that says that dropped objects actually don't fall. That's not believable. Dropped objects do fall. And so biased assimilation can lead people to be fortified by even a diverse range of material in what they thought before. And if people are biased assimilators with different original convictions, uh, that's also not going to be so healthy for democratic discussion. From... Your point of view, is that a new thing per se, totally, or is it just a radicalization of something that happened before you? In your book, uh, talk about obviously newspaper choices that people had or going to a specific church or seeking out groups of uh, friends in the community. So that seems to be uh, something that humans tend to do, flock among themselves. Is, is, is the technology that you see... Um, something radical new, or is it just putting things to a more extreme way? Okay, so it's a great question, and I'm tempted to say that the three mechanisms, that is homophily, biased assimilation, and group polarization, are as old as humanity. Uh, The kind of historical record, which is a common reference point, which is... uh, Genesis in the Old Testament. We don't have enough people, really, to describe Adam and Eve as uh, falling prey to these things, but surely there is a reading of the Bible such that group polarization got Adam and Eve in big trouble, and that they were biased assimilators of what they heard from the serpent. Uh, When we had more people than two, uh, 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 surely all three phenomena occurred. So the technology point is the is the correct novel point. And it, what is clear about the technology is that the proliferation of options allows people to self-sort with extraordinary ease. And the capacity to self-sort can extend to really small entities small in terms of perspective and topic, but no longer necessarily small in terms of groups who are engaging in that stuff. So if you want to find a group of people who think something, you know, pretty bizarre, like that there's a little place in some country where people from some other planet are organizing, that's easy to find. Uh, I haven't looked myself, so I'm just projecting that. And <laughs> pretty confident. Okay, I did look once. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you want to find people who are, have some uh, very exotic interests, like some cuisine from some place in uh, Sweden that people in Sweden don't particularly like, yeah. but that's, it's there. This whole scenario is not very likely. But. <laughs> I see. France. Okay. okay. Some cuisine in France that for the French don't like so much, but some people do. So, so the technology allows, and in a way this is fantastic. Yes, you can follow your interests and find people who share that interest. But if it involves a political point of view, then you can get fragmentation in a way that is uh, 
going to make it difficult for people to learn from one another and also difficult for uh, elected representatives to be free to adopt courses of action that involve, let's say, mutual learning or compromise. So can I ask, yeah, sorry, but um, when talking to people who have been thinking about the um, consequences of internet and uh, how that would affect communications and interactions between people for the last decade, uh, one thing that has been striking to me just this last year is that some people who used to be very positive about the possibilities of the internet to strengthen democracy have now turned much more uh, negative. And one reason for this is that these uh, extremely powerful platform companies such as Facebook is not only providing the technology for this, but it's also monetizing of, of this human behavior. And I was wondering about that because you write about Facebook in your book, but you um, don't write so much about the that um, economic in- incentives that are created by basically their advertising, their way of making money from from these behaviors. Okay, so a couple of general thoughts. I taught at the University of Chicago for a long time, and I, I, I love economic incentives. So in general, with respect to... Facebook does too. Yeah, <laughs> and Facebook loves them too. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking about cell phones or shirts or shoes, economic incentives are a great thing for people because the prices go down and the commodities are ones that people like and benefit from. So economic incentives, if not three cheers, 2.9 cheers for them. Uh, With respect to Facebook, I don't think the real concern, at least uh, I'm not clear that the real concern is economic incentives. And nor is that clearly the concern for social media. Economic incentives have a big upside, which is that they drive behavior in directions that help consumers. So if on Facebook you see advertisements for products that you're actually interested in, that's not a bad thing. And if you don't see advertisements for things that you would be bored by, that's that's also not a bad thing. So the, the economic incentive is pretty complicated, nor would I say that a general ag aggregate pessimism or negativity about social media or the internet makes much sense. Uh, In fact, I'd go so far as to say that a a general aggregate view about most things is, is an obstacle to clarity. You know, should we be positive about automobiles? Uh, No question. Uh, They kill a lot of people too, and they cause a lot of problems, uh, environmental and otherwise. So the aggregate view is you know, uh, uh, going to block us from getting clear on what's good and what's not so good and what we can do about what's not so good. So with Facebook, uh, uh, I think Facebook is a a great thing on balance. Uh, Its news feed reflects, uh, as of this discussion, uh, an algorithm, which is, uh, in my view, not well-serving Facebook's users and uh, Facebook has a lot of room to do different things with its news feed consistent with its economic self-interest. So in 2016, Facebook, and I should say in general, I'm a big admirer of Facebook. I have friends there and I'm a user. But they uh, that sounds a little like I'm a drug user. Right. I am not addicted to <laughs> Facebook. I, yeah, I, can you live without it? Uh, can you pass days uh, without it? I could pass an hours without it. Yeah. Days, You're uh, here probably. for one hour without your cell phone. So <laughs> probably, 
right? Uh, probably days without Facebook would be just fine. But uh, it's the what Facebook does with its news feed, according to its own self-description, is it tries to give people things that suit their very particular interests and concerns. And that sounds innocuous. Uh, it isn't innocuous. Uh, if we had a communications environment in Sweden or Germany or Denmark or Mexico or the United States in which each person had a communications environment that's particularly suited their interests and values, that's that's not freedom. That's a prison. Then you are enclosed in a little world, which is you. And Facebook has been insufficiently self-conscious about the problems that that poses both for Facebook's users and for people who are trying to interact with each other across uh, lines of interests and values. So uh, my belief and is that consistent with Facebook's economic interest, and they're doing great, they could have a different conception of the values that the news feed operates under. And we've seen some communications, uh, public communications from Facebook that suggest uh, the company's reassessing. So uh, my view is there's a lot of profit opportunity in uh, catering to uh, something that human beings have more than any other species, and that is curiosity. So is this whole book about nudging Facebook in a certain direction? No. <laughs> the, the book is uh, is about echo chambers and information cocoons <laughs> and the architecture of serendipity. Right. And Facebook happens to come up more than once, mm -hmm. but uh, a book that would be called Nudging Facebook <laughs> should probably be a paragraph and not but a you, book. If you want to nudge Facebook, though, you shouldn't write, <laughs> put that in the title, I guess. Uh, uh, you are right. You are right. Uh, But just to push back a little bit on what you said, because when I read the book, I mean, you you have a very dark description of what's happening right now. It's basically the breakdown of, of public discourse, and you, you're very, very worried about democracy, and you talk about, and you just mentioned um, um, talk, using words like architecture of control. And at the same time, um, you're saying that, you know, the means that we use uh, Facebook in this case is basically a good thing and you it's just these little tweaks that are needed to to fix it i i'm just wondering if that adds up okay that's a great question so uh, so i don't see the book as about the breakdown of democracy uh and one reason is democracy hasn't broken down yeah so but you're worried about it I wouldn't say the breakdown of democracy. I'd say I think I said the breakdown of public discourse. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I'm, I don't think we're having a breakdown of public okay. discourse either. So, uh, what I'm worried about is actually really specific, which is uh, uh, self-sorting into uh, echo chambers and the problems that creates for uh, problem solving. So, if you take my country. Uh, and there are parallels in many. Uh, we have a range of problems. Our infrastructure is not what it should be. We have uh, 40,000 people who died on the roads in 2016. We have over 400,000 who died from cigarette smoking in 2016. We have a problem of persistent poverty. Uh, we have an educational system which is not nearly what it should be for, for our nation. And uh, that's just four problems I've listed. It's not clear those are the four top problems, but they all are ones that could have serious solutions in the next three months. 
And uh, the fact that there aren't serious solutions likely in the next three months is partly a product of um, a political system which is uh, uh, unable to uh, produce, let's say, technically informed solutions, partly because of polarization, which stems partly from the phenomenon we're describing. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I, what I'd say is the the concern of the book. <clears throat> now, in terms of tweaks, uh, the book is much more about the problems than solutions. Yeah. But uh, of course, solutions are uh, indispensable. One way to get solutions, and the book just gestures at this, is to have, uh, let's say, uh, a conception of democracy which is uh, more technocratic and less populist. Now, the idea of technocratic democracy doesn't get people excited. It probably gets them scared. But if, if you look at... Uh, things that have gone well in European nations, in South American nations, in, in the United States, and in Asia. Uh, Asia has many of the countries there, uh, big deficits of democracy, but still, a lot of the things that have gone well, it's because people who quite know what they're doing have been able to um, use their knowledge with a degree of political accountability to try to get things improved. So, I'll take the United States. We've done a lot about air pollution in the United States. And what's been done about air pollution has been uh, driven in large part by people who actually know a lot about air pollutants and which cause health problems and, and which can be reduced without wreaking economic havoc. And it's been, a, you know, in many ways, a, spe- a spectacular success story. So the idea of technocratic democracy says uh, give people space uh, subject ultimately to political control to apply their knowledge. Uh, and uh, that goes back actually to uh, the founding of the American Constitution where the conception of our system of self-government wasn't populist. Our Constitution's drafters were very nervous about populism because they were nervous about passion and about interest, which they thought could screw everything up, Mm -hmm. and they were right. Uh, They didn't put, I think, as much clarity as they should have on the technical uh, expertise side, but it's it's part of their idea. Now, I'm very self-conscious as I talk about technocratic democracy that uh, that if a political leader said, you know, technocratic democracy, that's what I'm for, that political leader is probably going to fail electorally. Nonetheless, I was privileged to work in the Obama administration, and while President Obama is both a Democrat, meaning member of the Democratic Party, and a great believer in democracy, a lot of the things that worked well for him were uh, uh, licensing people who actually knew stuff, because they spent their lives on stuff, to use what they knew to get going not to put things up to the political winds. So that's one direction. Another direction, which is more in the tweak uh, question you ask, is what can we do about our democratic order? You know, no technocratic stuff here. What can we do in our democratic order to reduce the risks that we're discussing? And you can imagine media outlets, podcast generators, um, 
uh, social media, large and small, just doing a much better job of creating an architecture of serendipity and combating an architecture of control. Facebook, I am hopeful, will do better on this count and certainly be much more self-conscious about its core values. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen actually incipiently in the recent period is many media outlets are really worried about this. And, and this is a way of, you know, uh, democracy in the simpler sense, meaning people talking with one another, using uh, the communications environment in a way that uh, combats our three, the three villains we have, mm. homophily, group polarization, and biased assimilation. So what we talked a lot about in this podcast so far was the question of technology and, and democracy, how that either changes the game or how that can be employed. And it's so great to have you on the podcast as somebody who talks about those two terms as very closely interrelated. And, and you talk about technology, now that's something, if I understand you correctly, that is alien to to humans or is that, it's, it's a prolongation of, of human thought it's a development it's, it's inherently interwoven with, with who we are and I think that's uh, a very constructive approach to um, the questions that technology raises because if, if it's something alien you, you might have to deal with it in a different way um, and you employ the word architecture a lot so um, I would like to go back a little But I would also, in the end, hope that we go forward. You say you don't have solutions, but we're a solution-driven yeah, podcast. Some, here. Some, some ideas. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm curious about your ideals. I mean, you went further back uh, to the Constitution, um, and, and you write in the book very interestingly about the discussions about uh, how to conceive the relationship between populist or non-populist um, government influences. But, but one specific reference that, that you mentioned is, is the city, um, is the metaphor of the city is Jane Jacobs, the great American urbanist, with her book uh, Death and Life of the Great American Cities, um, and, and, and which is an ideal which is, was published in the 70s. Um, and it's, a, it's a, in a way a, not a nostalgic approach to the city itself, but it's an it's a approach to the city as, a, as an ideal which is grounded in the ideal of democracy, which has spaces, places, squares, meeting places. Um, um, but At the time, already, it was not sort of that. That wasn't that was a greenish village in a way. It wasn't Midtown. It wasn't the skyscrapers. It wasn't Trumpville in a way. So, how how does that connect with what you think? Is is it? Um, do you see a certain nostalgia in your thinking? Do you think that that that, that is a progressive, heterogeneous, democratic environment per se that we have to sort of preserve for the digital age? You talk about um, public spaces in the digital form, intermediate spaces. Can you? Um, explain sort of your your architecture of not of serendipity specifically um, around uh, yeah. around those questions. So I'm thinking: Are there 21st century uh, uh, sins? And despair would be one. I'd put despair number one on the list. And nostalgia might be in the top ten. And the I mean, not a mortal sin certainly, but the problem with nostalgia is that it's uh, rarely constructive and it's uh it might be despair's uh younger 
uh, more tentative sibling is nostalgia. So the Jane Jacobs notion of what a great city is, I see as uh, kind of the opposite of nostalgia, uh, even though the book wasn't written recently. So I've had the privilege of being in a variety of diverse cities in the relatively recent past, including uh, Copenhagen and Berlin and Stockholm. And uh, my own experience, which, you know, based on uh, short visits, is there are at least places in those three cities that uh, make uh, Jane Jacobs' celebration of the great American cities uh, seem uh, insufficiently celebratory, that you can find places in uh, Berlin and Stockholm and Copenhagen that are not only unbelievably beautiful, but are teeming with the diversity of life. It's like what a, a scientist who studies the ocean sees when you look at some amazing part of the Atlantic. Uh, that's what I think an ordinary person going to one of those cities, at least if you don't take it for granted, you're going to see in two hours. And uh, that's, uh, I, I love you're connecting that with democracy because there's a conception of democracy that is uh, like what uh, a great city is. That is, it's a lot of different people that you can learn from uh, people's um, interests and uh, difficulties and, you know, tragedies and triumphs and that's what a well-functioning democracy has in it. And that's something humanity hasn't come close to adequately realizing. And now there's the communications world, where it can be that your experience of, you know, um, some website is analogous to someone's experience of Paris. And that happens. Or it can be your experience of some website is like uh, you're going to a little tunnel and it's very cozy and kind of dark and really warm, but it's not Berlin or Stockholm. Just to break some bad news here, Paris is disappearing, uh, <laughs> Berlin is disappearing, uh, and it's the forces, I would say, um, of capitalism. What do you mean that creates no, the, those, those Yeah, the, the public places. spaces, that's exactly the discussion in, in European cities. That's what the... the, the um, Uprisings are about in London or in Barcelona, in, or, or, or the, the conflicts in Berlin, gentrification, the, the loss, segregation. Um, yeah, segregation, mm -hmm. echo chambers in real space. Um, actually, you write. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But that's um, um, gated communities. That's really the architecture of. Uh, uh, suspicion in, in the city. So, so my question is: Can you separate what you talk about from the basic question of capitalism? What, well, which love, is driving I, those? Yes, um, I, I should say I love capitalism, 
And, I think every country in the world should be capitalist because capitalism is a, an engine of both liberty and economic growth. So what capitalism means, as I understand it, is private ownership of the means of production and a free enterprise system. And that's, uh, that's great. Now, we could have a lot of different conceptions of capitalism. We could have capitalism of the sort that I would associate with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which entails um, you know, a very robust educational system, uh, protections for people who are uh, disabled or elderly, uh, very strong efforts to protect people who are at the economic bottom, both in their capacity to have opportunities and in their uh, assistance in the event that the opportunities aren't forthcoming or, or aren't helpful. But uh, uh, it would be very hard, I think, uh, though this would be an extended conversation, uh, to support the view that what uh, Europe needs is something other than capitalism. It might be easy to support the view that what Europe needs is very targeted efforts to counteract, let's say, uh, certain um, adverse effects of economic incentives on uh, public spaces. That would be a much narrower claim. Now, my own expertise with respect to what's happening in Berlin and Paris and their architecture, my own expertise is akin to my expertise on nuclear physics, which is to say nothing. Uh, and so I would defer to others on that. But uh, if the, 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 the government took as its uh, as its enemy, capitalism, that would uh, be probably it would combine the problem of unbelievable abstraction with the problem of uh, of uh, of going after something that's a great social good. So we won't edit that out. That, that play for <laughs> capitalism. So if it's a free country, yeah. and and it's actually it's not exactly what what I meant. So if it's not about the other, it's not about the other system. We we're still in the part of realism, not utopia. Utopia is well, I wouldn't see it as utopia. <laughs> so I, I, my question is more to the point. So if, if you accept that capitalism has some, uh, um, I don't know if it's an, if it's inherent in capitalism or some 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 mistakes inbuilt, but but if you accept that maybe what's happening in cities and in Facebook is, is, is due to some capitalist factors of um, con control and or uh, uh, sort of um, yeah, con control over, over space, which is then corporately owned. I, I, don't, if, I don't think I agree with that. And with respect to the design of cities... But the question would be, so if, 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 if that brings you to... No, the, no, but with but, respect to the, the Internet, uh, the, the profit motive is not a bad thing. But that's my question. So who who is who is the agency to change that? Wh wh whom are you talking to? I mean, you talk to the reader in the book, but there's a larger question. So who who, who do you address in your change? Is it governments? No. Is okay. it is it the market? I guess yes. Okay. So uh, what would be uh, good to replicate? Uh, and there are some governments that can help on this, and there are also private entities who can help on this. Uh, and now we're getting, uh, I think, uh, in the direction of utopia, and though it's very realistic. What would be good to replicate is forums in which diverse people can speak substantively about problems that they face. And uh, that could be 
uh, an internet site, and there are lots of them, so this is the happy side of the current situation, which uh, sites which are either making money or not and engaged in trying to solve problems, and you can take your pick. Uh, and this can be generated privately, and some of them are making money. Uh, the New York Review of Books, which is our leading, I think, English-language uh, um, literary journal, has a lot of discussion of politics. The ideas are diverse. People are fighting with one another. They make a lot of money. Without the profit motive, you're not going to have the New York Review of Books, or it's going to be very challenging to generate the New York Review of Books. Uh, so governments can do some things, um, not through regulation of the social media. That would be, uh, at least in the context we're now discussing, that is regulation to produce diverse ideas. That would raise questions. Now, some regulation to prevent... Death threats and bribes and conspiracies and such and terrorism that that's uh, that's legitimate, but uh, some things for government to do. The the great engine, in my view, of of greater democratization along the dimension we're now discussing, it's the private sector, and it might be, you know, a leading newspaper, and uh, you can probably find forty examples without a lot of work that are doing it and doing it maybe with more energy now than five years ago, or entrepreneurs who are either trying to make money or make the world better with, with startups that are uh, have a democratic uh, uh, goal in them, and uh, some of them are going to make money, some of them aren't, but they're going to do just fine. Uh, technology people who are specialists in how to. Uh, use what's coming in the interest of democratic goals. And, of course, uh, to the extent that you can have a, a culture of people who are thinking not, you know, some of my fellow citizens are enemies, but instead they have a different view, and if I learn why they're wrong, I'll know more about the issue. Or if I learn what they think, I might learn that I'm wrong on something. That's a, a kind of uh, a, a democratic culture, which I think the the nations with which I have some familiarity that is still the dominant uh, the dominant thing in those cultures. So I have a question about um, going back to the bigger issue of um, capitalism. I guess uh, uh, coming from Sweden, I I, I it's a different. Uh, type of country. I mean, it's still a, a market economy, but it has more uh, government and in intervention and all of that. But I'm thinking about when thinking about polarization and what, how, what are the driving forces behind it? The, your book is about technology, but it's something that it kind of leaves out is the um, the increasing economic inequalities. And I'm just wondering what your thinking is about that. Because is there a limit to how far away we can be from each other in terms of economic inequalities and just the worlds we live in, if we're at all, you know, supposed to be able to speak to each other and, and learn from each other? Okay, so there are so many great points there. And um, I'm thinking that some of this uh, is helpfully clarified by just getting clear on, on words. Yeah. So... When I hear the word capitalism, I yeah, think... Yeah, let's not, maybe. Yeah. I, 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 I think uh, free enterprise system and private ownership of the means of production. Sure. And then if the question is government regulation, 
uh, of the sort that Sweden or the United States have? Yeah. Is that incompatible with capitalism? Not at all. I mean, the theory that justifies capitalism justifies, obviously, control to protect uh, against insufficient provision of public goods, one of which is clean air, another which is clean water. Uh, the theory that supports capitalism, which is that it promotes human welfare, argues strongly for government intervention designed to do promoting of human welfare for people whose, let's say, legs don't work, people who can't make it in the marketplace. So I've worked for four years in the government on regulation, and we issued about 2,000 final regulations in the Obama administration, and I believe not one was incompatible with capitalism. Now, the inequality problem is uh, really serious. And then the question is, what kind of serious problem is it? Yeah. In the first instance, uh, in my view, the problem of inequality isn't a problem of inequality. It's a problem of deprivation. So if you have a country where uh, uh, half of the country is extremely rich and half of the country is rich, that could have massive inequality. And that's that. That's if if that country uh, needs reform, it's not on my list of the countries that most need reform. Even though there's a lot of inequality by hypothesis, so the problem of uh, inequality, I think, is in the first instance a problem where significant numbers of people in one's nation are are, are living difficult lives because they don't have enough resources. In the United States, which I know. Uh, best. Uh, we do have a problem of persistent uh, deprivation at the bottom. The problem is the bottom 10%, not the top 1%. So if we have 1% that's doing spectacularly well, I probably should be taxed more. But if you're taxed more or less, it doesn't matter a whole lot. It's the people who are struggling to feed their children and to uh, get um, a decent education for their kids or to make the next week work, those are the people who should be the emphasis. Now, uh, why some countries haven't done enough about people at the bottom, that is a very nice question, and that is a really important question. Its relationship to the question of polarization, I'm not clear on. It it seems to me the question of polarization is... um, making it so that people can't understand one another or figure out mutually agreeable solutions, which everyone would think is, yeah, that's fine, or compromises where people would give up something but think it's fine enough. And the inequality problem seems to be another kind of problem. I don't feel like I'm uh, particularly expert on the general problem of inequality taken exactly as such. But it is the case that some forms of inequality, at least in some countries, uh, are translated into political inequality. And that's a big problem. So if you have some people who are, let's say, in the top 20% who have much more political clout than people in the bottom 20%, that is not a problem of economic deprivation, which is a principal concern. But to free associate a little bit more... Along the domain of inequality, there's one program that many countries have. It's called an earned earned income tax credit. And 
you know, they're analogs. And the program means that if you're working and you're not earning much, then the government's going to give you a tax credit, so you have more. That's a spectacular program. It means that mothers often have better health. It means that kids have better health, not just more money. It means the likelihood that the kids actually have better economic prospects when they grow up increases. So now we're talking about technocratic democracy. The technocrats say earned income tax credit is fantastic. And that seems to me a a very uh, important kind of program, and we could probably get much better and smarter about programs like that. It's not, it can be described as an inequality reducing program, but it's really a deprivation diminishing program. And its relationship to polarization is pretty indirect. I don't know if I've answered your question. Well, I think you have. I don't think I agree with you. But I didn't uh, think you did. Yeah. But um, I hear what you're saying. Okay, where do we not agree? So I think I would not agree on um, uh, the way you separate inequality. You say that deprivation is the only problem. I would think about a social contract I, th- I would say that there is a limit to where people are so far away from each other in terms of the lives they live and the world they see, wh- where they just uh, are not able to communicate I, anymore. And I think that has to has to do a lot to do with economic inequalities. So we, we don't disagree. Yeah. So uh, so I may have misphrased it. So in terms of uh, so I worry about people being too rich as much as. Okay. Being too poor, so maybe that's where I we. Do, I do differ. too. I, I think we, if we disagree, it's it's modest, more modest maybe. So, what what uh, I should have said and may not have been clear enough on is the number one priority that marches under the name inequality, in my view, is acute human deprivation. That's not to say that's the only problem. So, if you have a country where a half is extremely rich and half is rich and they don't interact with one another and they don't even see each other. That's a little like H.G. Wells wrote these uh, tales of societies. They're actually a little more uh, stark, the differences, than just described. But we could do a modern H.G. Wells, a non-nostalgic version where you have the rich people and the very rich people, and it looks a little awful because they don't really live in the same country. And uh, I know you're not thinking about that. You're thinking about economic disparities and no group, at least one group isn't rich. I agree that's a problem. But I think sometimes, at least in my country among the academics, they they lose themselves in, in adjectives and uh, like, na- nouns. Like what? Uh, like uh, unequal. Mm-hmm. And a, 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 a noun would be authoritarian or something. Uh, or uh, rigged would be another word that that people lose themselves in, and it might be better to think, you know, uh, to get really concrete about what kind of days or uh, obstacles uh, real people are living in, and if you look at pockets of you know, countries that are doing very well. Uh, people are not crying out for equality. They're crying out for a chance or uh, some resources. And so one way to put it is that uh, whatever they're crying out for, let's listen to them. Mm. And uh, what, what is it that they're asking for? 
my question would be, I think, tied into that a little bit. So to move into your ideal of democracy or your conception of democracy um, as connected to what you say is a deliberative democracy, in an Aristotelian fashion in a way, so if, um, and in, in practice connected to uh, the theories of Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher about uh, how uh, deliberative approaches to democracy can work. I think one of the criticisms was always that it leaves out the power dynamic or class structure or who is part of this discourse and how, and, and how do you um, enable people to have that ideal position of being on the same level and, and I guess Karin's question or the question of inequality goes in, in that direction and the question of echo chambers in a way avoids that that right. question I think so if you, you have this techno, more technocratic description or this mm -hmm. more superficial description of oh things seem to go wrong so we might have to uh, sorry, <laughs> nudge a little here, nudge a little there so if we have to find ways to connect people through smart Twitter moves or something but this is um, avoiding the more fundamental question of what, how does democracy really work? And, and you have a model, but I'm just questioning if, if that model um, is just a model um, or, or, or it has a reality to it that, that you might elaborate on for, for the 21st century. Okay, so that, that's also a fantastic question. So uh, a, a kind of bow of deference to Professor Habermas, uh, from whom I've learned a great deal, and also just a kind of notation that much of his career has been focused not only on theories of democracy, uh, but also, and as part of that, on questions about uh, political equality and uh, legitimacy. So Habermas's own conception of deliberate democracy is um, uh, emphasizes, and I think this is his phrase, the forceless force of the better argument, which is intended to uh, eliminate the, the, the uh, let's say, the coercive power of, uh, of, of power. So that's Habermas. That's a fantastic quote. I've never heard that, mm -hmm. but it's just yeah. sorry to interrupt. Uh, uh, I'm writing it uh, down. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Habermas, a hero of mine. Uh, in terms of whether de deliberative democracy works in the real world, uh, uh, I, I worked in the U.S. government, as noted, for four years, and often... Uh, my own experience was that it was deliberative democracy. There was nothing artificial about it. And the, the currency was not uh, a campaign contributions or power of any kind. The currency was the force of the argument. And it, so I'm describing uh, issues involving what is the United States going to do about the problem of Ebola as it's exploding in uh, certain nations. And this the what emerged when it was a successful uh, address of the problem was uh, argument based and it was emphatically deliberative, including in the Situation Room and in the Oval Office. Uh, in a small scale, you're talking about this space. Uh, it small it's not a societal discussion. No. Yeah. So, so, but you asked deliberative democracy. How does it work in the real yeah. world? We're speaking now of, and I could give you. You know, 70 examples. Okay. I, th I think I'll just give one other, which is how to deal with the problem of uh, 
uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from automobiles. And uh, that was very aggressively uh, addressed by the United States government. And it was emphatically deliberative with people thinking, and it was deliberative democratic. It was something that involved public public comment process, engagement, not just with the president and his closest advisors, but with environmentalists, with consumers, a public comment period that involved many thousands of reactions. And if someone said, you know, uh, someone has a lot of power, that would have been uh, a taboo and a ridiculous comment and uh, never heard anything like that in discussions of fuel economy. Of course, political realities mattered, but uh, but it was a, a deliberative process, and that happened all the time. Now, to have a deliberative process among tens of millions of people at the same time is extremely challenging, even with modern technology. And if we could overcome the technological challenges, it's not clear we'd be excited about what we'd observe because many of those millions of people would have no interest and would think, why are you bothering me on this question? So the fact that deliberative democracy typically involves something like a division of labor where there's people working you know, every minute of every day on some issue, call it... Uh, uh, risks that people at the lower end of the income distribution face to their health and other people are just making sure that the government is not going in fundamentally wrong directions that that's that's okay so there's a conception of deliberative democracy that um, I wouldn't want to saddle Professor Habermas with this, but it goes to, to James Madison, the largest force behind the United States Constitution. And that recognized that in a large republic, you're not going to have ongoing deliberation on the part of ordinary citizens. You're going to have deliberation on the part of representatives whom the citizens control. And uh, that doesn't always work even a little bit well. But to your question, which is, it, is it a practical possibility? I lived it every day for four years, and that's a lot of days. Maybe to your conception, um, on a larger scale, you, you mentioned tens of millions and, and small groups. You Just two words that you mentioned in your book, which are seemingly contradictory, and one of the words is a little hmm. alien to me. So you say that you have to have a heterogeneous um, populace to enable discourse that's meaningful but you, sh you should have a homogenous you might have to have a more homogenous uh, whole so if, if you homogenous societies tend to work better so well okay so there's an old view which goes back to Montesquieu he was the great exponent of the view that a system of self-government requires homogeneity meaning uh, relative uniformity People have to have the same wealth, the same manners, the same culture. They kind of have to agree. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to break down. And that's a view. Uh, I think Montesquieu, with uh, you know all the respect in the world for the uh, one of the greatest theorists of democracy humanity has produced, I think he was completely wrong. <laughs> That if if you have a group of people who basically agree, what are they going to talk about? How are they going to solve their problems? And so, if you look at a democracy's shining moments in, over the last, 
you know, even the last 50 years, they've involved people who disagree a lot on a lot. And often that disagreement has been a source of strength because they've been able to figure out something that really worked. Uh, a kind of very vivid example of this was provided by uh, someone who I think only wrote one book. His name is Lester Gulick. He's been lost to history. And the one book that I know he wrote, it's a really boring book. It was written after World War II, but he had... He had but some, he has his moment now. We're going to give a tribute to Lester Gulick because he said, you know, in World War II it was said that the United States and the Allies, they just couldn't beat the countries that had a kind of top-down organization, that the democracies were too... Uh, diverse and unruly. They couldn't, how could they fight a war? And what Gulick said is that was, uh, uh, that Montesquieu-type thought was, was not right. The reason the Allies could fight a war is there's a lot of diversity and people could talk and think about what would be the right strategy and that if you're trying to do well under conditions that are rapidly changing, you need lots of different points of view and you need a receptivity to them. And Gulick said that's why uh, democracies actually have a comparative advantage. And this is what we're talking about now is against Montesquieu mm-hmm. in favor of uh, uh, diversity. Of Gulick. Gulick Well, if you think of the economic triumphs of countries as different as Japan and Germany, and I'm going to add here... Singapore and South Korea, which are not often thought to be, you know, analogous to uh, Germany and Japan and the United States, but all of those countries, including South Korea and Singapore, uh, there's a lot of ideas that go in, and they're not the same ideas. And that things that have worked out fantastically in those countries, and there are a bunch of them, it's because there's mutual learning from people who didn't go in thinking alike. I have a question about. Um Going back to your book, uh, something that, that I've been thinking about in this political mo- moment that we're in. Uh, you, so when you talk about deliberative democracy and you mention threats to groups or forces kind of misusing the system, you talk about terrorism and uh, ISIS using the weaknesses of this um, Architecture of control, but isn't one other one thing that you don't mention is uh, more the the political propaganda networks that we now see um, on the rise in Europe and also I would say in the U.S. And I just read this research um, project that the Berkman Klein Center here at Harvard and MIT have made on the election and the rise of um, bright the Breitbart universe uh, and how well interconnected that part of the internet is to propaganda networks on the far right in Europe. And I'm just wondering, how do you... Sometimes to me it sounds like you make the assumption that people are generally benign or, you know, they try to do their best and these things, it's just a, you know, uh, just how the brain works. They don't have bad intentions. It's just this you know, involuntary bias that we have. But we also see these forces trying to hijack uh, this infrastructure. Uh, You're completely right. Uh, So uh, an issue that I've been concerned about is, as you say, is terrorism and the use of social media to recruit and uh, radicalize people. Um, 
and that is, you know, very vivid mm. horror. Um, but the use by people who don't have murder on their minds, but who have, let's say, power or control uh, instead, mm. in a way that might or might not be on policy grounds uh, nefarious, that that's bad. So you're you're completely right. Uh, the the book does not get into the pro- use of social media as a propaganda instrument by people with particular political views. And uh, next edition may be. So, but I completely agree with you. The fact is that both President Obama and President Trump were effective users of social media. Um, at least from the public record, the Obama and Trump campaigns were not um, uh, were not hiding what they were doing. You know, Trump was a great tweeter, a great mm. user of of uh, YouTube and Facebook. Now, by great, I don't mean to say wonderful. I mean effective. Um, but the the problem of uh, hidden networks that are hiding. Stuff from the public, uh, that's that apparently has reality to it. So next version of the book. Next version of the book, Perfect. 2018. Okay. And Cass one of the miracles of uh, technology is that even the internet has its limits, which is time. So of your time and uh, time of the podcast. Um, <laughs> And just to thank you very much for the conversation. Just two or three quick points. Uh, one failure, we didn't uh, avoid uh, Trump. I thought we could do that. Yes, but, almost. Um, but almost. So that's, yeah. that's a, and, and the other failure is we didn't really have the utopian moment where we will get back to you about that. Um, uh-huh. But we brought back uh, Gulick into the yeah. conversation. <laughs> so we, we, I'm always for the underdog if they, win, if, if they win. So I'm glad for, for that. Thank you. Great. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Anger Management is a production of Aftenbladet, Berlin Community Radio, the Neiman Foundation, and 60 Hertz.